For Mary, becoming God's servant meant that she allowed herself to become a vessel that would carry the baby Lord Jesus into the world. For us, as Dave Wartson, our Truth Encounters study leader, shares, it means that we recognize that our bodies have now become the dwelling place of Christ's Spirit. Dave? Let's turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In Luke chapter 1, verse 26, we have the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. Just as he'd come to Zacharias, Gabriel appeared to Zacharias in the temple. And this incredible messenger angel from the Lord went up north. Zechariah was in the temple in Jerusalem. It's about 65 miles to the south. Angels don't have any trouble in their transportation. And so Gabriel makes uh, the supernatural journey. And he appeared, it says right here, that it was the sixth month. That's the sixth months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So already the miracle of John the Baptist's birth is in full swing. And this ancient lady that thought she would never be able to have a baby is now going to have a baby. In the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the Lord God sent the angel Gabriel. He was sent from God unto a city of Galilee, which is named Nazareth. It's very important to understand, I think, one of the very first things we're introduced as we think about the, the announcement of the, of the birth of Jesus or the conception of Jesus to Mary is we're reminded right at the very start of what Jesus' first coming is going to be about. Jesus' coming contradicts one of the most dominant forces in my life. You know, I like bigness. I like power. How about you? Some of you kids right here are dreaming of the day uh, when you can get away from this little town and you can get where things are really, really happening. And uh, when I was a kid living in New Jersey, man, we didn't have to dream very long. Man, we could just go across the river, and we were in that big apple, and, and that's the exciting thing. And we like big meetings, and we like, you know, people that have power and have prestige, and everybody knows who they are. One of the things you're going to have to understand about your Savior in his first coming, it's not the way he comes. If you really want to meet the Lord Jesus in his first coming, if you really want to get close to the Lord Jesus during this time, before he comes to rule and reign with power, you're going to have to go to the Nazareth that are in your world. You're going to have to go to the little towns. You're going to have to be with the small people. Nazareth was a backwater town in Jesus' day. In fact, today, Nazareth is much bigger and much more prominent. Right now, today, it's very much of a divided city. There's a strong uh, Jewish element that has built apartment houses and condos in Nazareth. There's also a very strong Islamic contingent that's been there for centuries uh, after centuries. It's a, it's a city that's filled with all kinds of hostility because of that. And it's a really much more powerful town than it was in Jesus' day. But in Jesus' day, it was just the other town. Serapis, which is only about 20 minutes away, was a powerful Hellenic city. And, and probably Joseph, um, Jesus' uh, earthly stepfather, probably worked there. But Nazareth was the small, forgotten town. But it wasn't forgotten by God. I want every one of you to realize, if you say, well, Dave, you know, I'm not really that important, and I don't really have a lot of resources, and I don't have a lot of, of this world's popularity and power and everything, I want you to know that one of the first things you need to realize about Jesus is he comes to you. In fact, probably the Lord will be able to use you in ways that he's not going to be able to use that arrogant, prideful person because the Christmas story reminds us that Jesus comes to Nazareth. 
Jesus didn't want, the angel didn't go to Jerusalem to some powerful priest's daughter that was in Jerusalem. He didn't go to Caiaphas' family. He didn't go to Annas' family. Those were the earthly priests that were the aristocrats of that day. He went way up there into Nazareth, and it says that he appeared to a virgin girl. And this virgin girl had been betrothed to a, to a husband whose name was Joseph out of the, out of the house of David. And the name of that precious virgin's name was Miriam, or Mary, which is a name that means excellence. Now, what I want you to see is that Luke is outlining and underscoring some very important things. First of all, he underscored that she is a virgin. Now, there's nothing in this text that tells us that we, like Matthew, in contrast, for example, right away moves to Isaiah chapter 7. Luke, in this passage, gives us no indication that he's even thinking of Isaiah chapter 7. So you don't want to think that the early church somehow read Isaiah 7 and came up with a virgin birth story, conjectured that, or made it up. Luke is just, as an historian, he tells us in the beginning of chapter 1 that he's just going to lay out to us in very clear, simple ways the facts. And so he begins by highlighting this fact, this girl is a virgin girl. And what's happened to her is probably about a year before, maybe a little bit less than a year before, because Joseph and Mary aren't living together in their culture, a daddy would get together with a husband-to-be. There would be the exchange of a bride price. The husband would, there would be a dowry that would provide for that young girl during the early stages of her marriage especially and become a gift to her. And they would make arrangements between the parents And that was a formal legal thing that was done between the two heads of the household. That girl, from that moment on, as a 14-year-old often or a 15-year-old, she would now be considered the legal wife of the man she was betrothed to. But they would not consummate the marriage. The girl would not leave her daddy's house until about a year later. And then they would have a big seven-day celebration or a multiple-day celebration. Aren't you, Daddy, glad we don't do that today? Can you imagine the bill for a seven-day? I mean, I've looked at some bills just for one day of feasting, and that's kind of tough. But what they would do is they'd have a great big multiple-day feasting, and the bridegroom would go to the bride's house, And he would get his precious bride. They'd have a great big procession in the city. And they would go to the husband's house. And then they would have a great celebration and consummate the marriage. And then they would live together till death do us part. So you'll understand exactly what's happening. This is a virgin girl. She is legally the wife of Joseph. But they haven't consummated the marriage. They haven't had that great celebration. And they have not begun to set up their, their role together as a husband and a wife in consummating this sexual union. Notice that Luke underscores that Joseph is of the, of the house of David. Very important to see that. Luke wants you to understand it's very, very important that this little baby that's going to be born, that's going to be announced in the next few sentences, is going to be a legal Davidic heir. You say, Dave, what's so important about that? Because in the Old Testament, and a lot of you already know this, but I want to remind you, and if you ever wonder, like, why should I believe in Jesus? One of the reasons why you need to believe in Jesus, what makes him so different from other religious leaders or religious founders, is that 2 Samuel chapter 7 promised, God made a promise to to a monarch named David. 
who actually lived. We have inscriptions in stone way up in Don, Tel Don, an archaeological site, that right in stone is chiseled the son of David. And one of David's heirs was, giving on, was being given honor up in one of these archaeological cities up in Tel Don, way up in northern Israel. So David was a real man. Second Samuel tells us that, 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 that God, through his spirit and through the prophet Nathan, came to David and made an incredible promise to him. In 2 Samuel 7, he says, David, there's never going to fail a male heir from your line. And he is going to be a great king. Now Solomon initially fulfilled it. In fact, Solomon becomes a picture of the great golden age. And Solomon produces a united kingdom and an age of peace. But then Solomon falls into, into sin. And he becomes a great disappointment. In fact, with the kind of Jewish kids that Don and I were raised with back in New Jersey, the ones that were Orthodox that knew a little bit about their history, they actually looked down upon Solomon. When I've been in Israel, my Israeli guide, as we debate theology late at night, they would talk about the oppression that King Solomon gave. So they don't look back upon King Solomon's monarchy as being a golden age. They think of it becoming an age of oppression, of intense taxation, and of, of, of the kingdom just becoming a human kingdom that lost its ethical foundation. So Solomon, as great as he was, because of his failure, he became a great disappointment. And that disappointment in the kingdom of Judah got worse and worse and worse, except for a few glimmerings of light with a king like Hezekiah, who came back to the Lord. And then just before the uh, fall into the Babylonian captivity, a precious young king named Josiah caused a tremendous revival. And then the house of David plunged with Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim plunged into just degradation and really obscurity. In fact, the last, when God angel, when Gabriel made this announcement to Mary, do you realize that it had been more than 400 years since the son of David had had any power? Zerubbabel, you see, just for some of you that are biblical trivia people, in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a man named Zerubbabel who's of the house of David. He's a prince of David. He returns to the land under the order of Cyrus. And he's able to return and begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And he's made a Persian under governor. And that's the last royalty or power that a son of David has. You say, well, Dave, what about the Maccabeans? Some of you that are real historians will know about the Maccabeans. In 164 BC, 164 years before Christ, a terrible Syrian ruler who, when we've studied the book of Daniel together... Some of you remember how I taught you extensively about Antiochus Epiphanes, who decided that he was going to annihilate the Jewish people culturally. He was not going to let them circumcise their baby boys. He wasn't going to let them offer lambs as sacrifices. He offered a pig on the, on the, altar, on the altar. He declared that, that Judaism was ended, and a tremendous, tremendous persecution broke out among God's people against the Jewish people. Remember the Maccabeans. Their daddy revolted against the Syrian ruler as he tried to force the Maccabean daddy, Judas and John's daddy, to sacrifice on the altar a pig. He rose up and slew the Syrian representative. The Maccabeans had to flee into the wilderness. Many Israelites joined them, and they were able, in a tremendous miracle of God that you read about in the book of Maccabees, they were able to, to defeat Antiochus Epiphanes' armies. 
And they're able to get freedom in Israel. It was the first time that Israel had been free in a more than 150 years. And they set up what's called, some of you might not have ever heard about this, but they set up what was called the Hasmonean dynasty. And the Hasmonean kingdom became very secular. And it became very much involved in their own power. And the, and the Pharisees, one of the reasons for the Pharisees rising up as a separatistic party was they wanted to rekindle the purity and the passion for the promises of God. And one of their yearnings, in fact, it's in a Pharisaic document from about 100 years before Christ, a Pharisee writes about the son of David. He writes about a royal king that will be from the house of David. When we study Qumran, a lot of you have heard me teach you about the documents we found in 1948 and the Qumran community, what's called also the Essene community. When we read their writings, in their writings they talk about a yearning for a Davidic king. They also write about a priestly uh, Messiah that they're looking for. But one of the things that's going around in the first century even before the time of Christ, it's like a milling idea. Maybe a great Davidic king could rise up and could deliver us from the Romans. And that's a, that's a powerful hope. And that's why when Jesus came and in his earthly ministries, we have those undercurrents of, is this the Davidic king? What I want you to see is that Luke wants you to know is that Jesus is that ultimate son of David. But I want you to know that he's not going to come the way the Pharisees wanted him to come. He's not going to come in his first coming and overcome the Romans with a sword in his hand. He's not going to be, you know, like William Wallace, like Braveheart. He's not going to come with a sword. In fact, that's one of the most incredible things that you and I as believers today, as we begin a new year, need to get a hold of. Because we understand that. We relish that. We love the great conqueror, the great general like Patton and like MacArthur and like Eisenhower. We love the man who comes with a sword. And one of the things you have to realize about Jesus in his first coming is that Jesus isn't going to be the son of David the way that the people in the first century expected him to be. But I want you to understand that he is that ultimate son of David. I want you to understand he's the royal king. And that's who we worship today. And that's why it's so important that Luke underscores that Joseph is of the house of David. Now he comes to Mary in verse 28. He comes to Mary, comes to her, and he says, he says, greetings. And the word there is literally rejoice or grace. In fact, Luke uses two words that, that the angel greets Mary with. And both of those words are rooted in grace. I want you to know that what we're committed to as a church family together is grace. If, if I go home to be with the Lord, I want you to remember grace. I want you to remember that it is God's unmerited favor to us. Everything God does in your life is not done because you earned it or because you deserved it or because you worked for it. I want you to understand that one of the greatest things you need to get a hold of in the Christmas story is the essence of this. The angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, grace, rejoice, and then she says, you have, you have been graced by God. Now, some of you, a lot of you, are from a Roman Catholic background. And uh, I want you to know, I want you to feel right at home. I was raised with a bunch of Roman Catholics, and, and that's who were my friends. And, and when we played baseball, before we went out to play baseball in the afternoon before a big game, all of them would start of Hail Mary, full of grace. Anybody ever heard that? In other words, a lot of my ball players, in fact, before, when, I got, when our big hitter got up, 
the cleanup hitter. He'd always go, Hail Mary, full of grace. And he would pray. He would pray his prayer. Anybody familiar with that? Some of you that, does that ring your background a little bit? Okay. What I want you to understand is that this is where that comes from. But I want you to look at something. And this is very important because I want us to honor Mary. And I, don't, I, I want all of you to realize that Mary is a, like for all the young women in our church, as, as those that are focused on the Bible, we want our young women to look upon Mary as the precious example of a godly mother, of a pure, precious teenager, of a woman that was devoted and faithful. But I don't want you to pray to Mary as someone who can give you grace. You see, the translation here is not that Mary in herself was full of grace. It's saying in this context, and even Raymond Brown, who's a famous, probably one of the most eminent Roman Catholic scholars, will say about this verse, that this verse is not saying that Mary was full of grace, but that Mary was graced by God. Brothers and sisters, the reason I make this distinction that's so important is some of you might pray to Mary. And the real biblical Mary would never want you to pray to her as an object of grace, as, a, as someone who could bestow grace upon you. And this is very important, because you're going to need grace. And I don't want you to pray for me to grace. As a pastor, as your pastor, I can't give you grace. And I don't want you to pray to anyone else. I want you to pray to someone that can really give you grace. And only God can give you grace. You everyone hear that? Only God can give you grace. It says, Hail Mary, you are the grace one. You have been graced by God. You have been endowed with grace from God. Specifically in this context, it's the grace of the incredible gift of that little babe that's going to be born in her. And if Mary were here today in a physical form and was able to talk to us, one of the things that Mary would say is, please don't adore me. Please don't pray to me. Let's all get down on our faith before my precious son. And he's not reluctant to hear any of you. And you don't need me to make him more open to your requests. I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, whatever tradition you're from, and in our church family, we're not putting down any traditions because we're from, from so many different backgrounds. But as your pastor, it's so important. This is reality. Jesus is the one that we all entreat and we all look to and we all pray to. And I want every one of you to know that you don't need anybody in between you and your Jesus. Amen? Aren't you so thankful that the same gracious God that bestowed grace upon Mary, bestowed unmerited favor upon Mary, and graced her with the gift of Jesus. I'm going to tell you something that it's just as great a miracle as happened in your heart. So I want you to be listening for that. Because a lot of you don't think about that. A lot of you think of a great miracle happened in Mary's heart because God created the Son of God in her womb. Every single one of you, even more than the Virgin Mary, in having the physical life of Jesus created in her, you have been graced by having a far greater miracle. So hail Mary, you have been graced from the Lord. And then she says, the Lord is with you. And that's a statement like when Joseph was in prison, when Joseph was going through horrible times, the Lord was with him. That's what got him through. The statement at the end of the book, through the whole story of Joseph, and the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him. When he gets thrown into into prison in Egypt, the Lord was with him. When he's forgotten, the Lord was with him. And one of the things that we're reminded of in the Christmas story is that the Lord is with Mary. 
She's about to be thrust in one of the most incredible experiences of her entire life. Her whole life is going to be turned upside down. And I want to share with you, Jesus will turn your life upside down. As you make a commitment to Jesus, as you say, I'm going to live for Jesus, and I'm going to believe in him, and I'm going to trust him, Jesus will invade your life, and your life will never be the same again. But the one assurance that I can give you is whatever you might need to go through, the Lord is with you. There's not anything you will face. There's no test in school. There's no rejection from university that you wanted to get into. There's no uh, stillborn child. There's no terminal illness. There is nothing that you will face that just like Mary, the Lord is with you. And that's an incredible thing. As I say before you today, that's one of the, I am so thankful for that. We have gone through some really tough things. With Mary's dad being so ill, I think, you know, it's, sure, he was 80 years of age. And a lot of you, one of the things I want to be careful, don't you ever distance yourself. Like when the Browns lost their precious father and grandfather. Don't just say, well, they were old. That's you distancing yourself. What if it was your grandfather? What about it was, if it was the man that you lived with for years since you were a little granddaughter? That grandfather had always been, been there. And then you watched their physical life just suck out of them. You watched their mind disappear. You watched their temperature system of their body go haywire. You watch for hours when they don't even know you. And they're just speaking in delirium. That's tough. Don't ever think you can run away from that. None of you can. The only thing that's going to get us through, what I want you to know, is the Lord is with us. What's gotten me through and what's gotten our family through is Jesus isn't divorced from that. So don't you divorce yourself from it. Don't run away from it. Don't deny it. Get angry at it. Cry about it. Scream about it. But remember, the Lord is with you. I wouldn't preach for, to you for one second if I didn't believe the Lord is with you. And I want every one of you to know, if you've received this in your heart, the most precious thing you have going for you is the Lord is with you. Don't ever forget that. You're going to be okay if you've invited Jesus into your heart because the Lord is with you and is going to do incredible, miraculous, kind, gracious things to you because the Lord is with you. And the word was given, grace be to Mary. You are favored by the Lord and what greater favor. Mary, I want you to know the Lord is with her. The Lord's with you. And boy, the Lord was going to be with her in a way that she could never imagine because the Lord himself was going to be created in that uterus of this precious virgin girl. That's an incredible, wondrous presence of God. Look what he goes on to say. It says, upon this word, I can imagine, Mary, you can imagine an angel appeared to you. Mary's troubled. She's perplexed. She's confused. And, and I love Mary because unlike, you know, don't you guys ever think women can't think? Because one of the things you need to realize about Mary is she's constantly dialoguing. She's constantly thinking. One of the prominent ideas about Mary and the word of God is she ponders in her heart. She thinks carefully through. And even as a young teenage girl, she's responding to the angel. One of her responses, what's happening? What is God doing? What's going on here? Man, you'd be perplexed too if suddenly an angel appears to you and says, you know, fear not, and I'm with you, and, and you are favored by the Lord. You're thinking, what in the world's going on? That's what Mary's thinking. Look what the angel says. It says, now the angel said to her, don't fear, Mary. You have found grace with the Lord God. And behold, there is going to be conceived in your womb a child is going to be a son, and you're going to call his name Jesus. Now he will be great, 
He will be the son of the highest. He will be called the son of the highest. And I'm going to give, I will give to him. The Lord God will give to him the throne of David, his father. And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And his kingdom will not end. I want you to stop and think about this. First of all, look at how the angel comes to Mary. Do not fear. Boy, you know, one of the things you're going to need in life at times, and I've needed it again and again, is do not fear. How many of you have ever been afraid? How many of you have said, Lord, I just can't face the next step? God's going to come to every one of you and he says, don't be afraid. You know, I've been afraid about a lot of things. I remember when I was a kid being afraid, you know, because I slept up in the attic and uh, we heard all kinds of creaky noises in this old, uh, the old New Jersey house. And I used to envision these hoodlums coming over from, from New York City and all those gangsters coming over and creeping up the stairs and murdering me in bed. And I remember lying in bed just petrified. Anybody, any of you kids ever done that? You know, one of the funny things about this, I started out when I was a real little kid, I slept, and I think I've shared this with some of you in the past, but it reminds me of my fears as a kid. I used to sleep in the first room at the top of the stairs to the left as you're walking up the stairs on the second landing. But then my brother and I switched, Ron and I, my younger brother and I switched to the attic. And I finally figured out that I didn't really need to be afraid because probably the murderer wouldn't ever figure out where we were sleeping. So that alleviated my fears, you know. I remember, I remember as, a, as working at Word of Life, I remember there was a big, long pathway. And I used to be, a, there was a, it, was, it went through this woods. Now there's a great big building there. They ruin everything. But there used to be this marvelous, beautiful pine forest. But there was a straight path. I remember one night about 11.30 at night in the Adirondacks, no moon, nothing, just mountains, big mountains all around me, and this pine forest. And I heard footsteps behind me. Have you ever gone there? Have you ever been alone at night and you heard footsteps behind you? And I was walking really slow down this path. I ended up, man, I ran a 9-2-hundred at the end of that period. And I ran into my cabin. And everyone, I was, what is this sheet? They said, what's wrong with you? I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. (laughs) Fear is one of the biggest things you have to deal with. Fear. As we grow up, some of you are wrestling with fear about your jobs. You don't know if you're going to have a job the next few weeks, and you're afraid. And it will paralyze you. It's a scary thing. Some of you, some of you precious moms, there's so many of you, and I, we're just so thrilled with little babies being formed in your womb. As I look over this audience, some of you are carrying that precious gift right now. And Satan tempts you with fear. And you're so afraid of what's going to happen. As a grandfather, I identify like I, with two more grandchildren on the way. One of the things that hits me in the middle of the night, will they be healthy? What about Leslie giving birth to a child in Morocco? The, the, the doctor doesn't even speak English. How can a doctor that doesn't speak English know anything about delivering babies? <laughs> the Christmas story is don't be afraid. I love the angels of God. They come to you. And remember the scriptures tell us in the book of Hebrews that angels, not just Gabriel, but angels, all of his cohorts are our ministering servants. I want you to know that you as the people of God are so precious that God's servants are ministering to you. And one of the things they're doing through the power of the Holy Spirit is saying, don't be afraid. God doesn't want any one of his children to be paralyzed by fear. He wants you to come. And I want to share with you with an older believer that there's nothing you can face that will separate you from the presence of Jesus, and that's why you need him. And he comes to you and says, don't be afraid. And then he talks about this incredible miracle. Don't be afraid, Mary. 
You're going to give birth to this child. You're going to, this child's going to be conceived in you, and you will call his name Jesus. And what I want us to see in verse 32, isn't this incredible? He will be great. Now, if I was a critic, when, the, when Luke wrote these words, way back in the first century, and, 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 and I said, Luke, you mean that an angel came to Mary and said, he's going to be great, and he's going to be called the son of the highest. And I want you to know, the idea of the son of the highest doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is divine. We don't want to jump to that. He is divine in Luke's thinking. But Luke, in this context, is underscoring that he is the, he's like a, a marvelous son of David who's going to be the king that David never was, that Solomon never was. And it's stressing the idea that he's the son of God. He's the son of God, but it's in the sense of Psalm 2 that he's going to be the Davidic king that will fulfill all these things. He will be great. Now, some of you are going to leave here and say, why should I believe in Jesus? I've talked with some of you, know, even the last few weeks, I've had to talk to some people and say, well, why should I believe in Jesus? What's the big deal about Jesus? You know, how can Jesus really be the important one? How, you know, how can what I learned in Sunday school class really be true? I want you to stop and think objectively for a minute. When Mary received these words, she was a 14-year-old kid, 15-year-old kid. She's in a Polonc city. And the angel says, Mary, you're going to conceive. And we don't know exactly when the time was, but a few, a, a little bit after this, suddenly she was pregnant by a miracle of God. And that little baby born in her, the angel said, that little baby is going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the highest. I want you to know something, brothers and sisters. In the first century, and you're going to face this in your life, some of you are going to say, well, I don't think this Jesus stuff is true. How can it be true? It's one of the big things Satan will bring in your life. And I want you to stop and think. Mary, when she received these words, he will be great. Mary could have said, how can he be great? I'm just a little servant girl. You know, I'm just living in Nazareth. How can he be great? In fact, even after he was born, they had to rush down to Egypt, rush up to Nazareth, spend 30 years just being a carpenter's, you know, a carpenter working with stone, working with wood. 30 years of age. He finally goes out, or thereabouts, goes out and declares his kingdom. He goes out and does miracles like we learned in the book of Acts. He ends up crucified, and he's dead. He never traveled out of Palestine, never wrote a book, never had any school, never founded a university. How could he be great? And I want you to always remember that. Because God's greatness doesn't come the way we think it comes. We think it comes with our planning, we think it comes with our wisdom. We think it comes with our abilities. It doesn't come that way. It comes by grace. When God declares he will be great, he's going to be great. And I want to share with you, Mary could have responded, there's no way my son, even when Mary died, probably she didn't have the full implications, even after the resurrection of all that Jesus was going to be. But I want you to know Jesus is great. Jesus is great. Jesus is great because if you're an unbeliever, he's the one you curse. That's how great he is. If you, if you hate Jesus, if you're a rank unbeliever, if you think everything I'm telling you about it, you leave here the room, you're going to go out and work with people that think everything I taught you this morning is a bunch of baloney. Just listen to your office this week and listen to who, when things go bad, you, you listen to who they curse and who they blame. If you're a soldier, say, I don't believe in this stuff. Man, all my, I'm in the Marines now, like my nephew. My nephew really is still living for the Lord, but a lot of the buddies, you go in the Marines, man, this Jesus thing is really out of it. 
and nobody really wants to listen to the chaplain. And man, who wants, I'm, I'm a macho Marine, you know. I'm great, man. F, you know, those powerful jet fighters, those are great. And, and being a special forces Marine, that's great. Wait till you're in Foxhole. Wait till one of your buddies gets wounded. And listen to what they yell out. And suddenly you'll hear in, in foxholes throughout the battlefield of the world, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I've been in intensive care tons of times when somebody comes out of the room, and I've never yet had someone go, oh, Muhammad. <laughs> or but I've never had it happen yet. And I'm, in Islamic, I haven't been, you know, I'm, I could ask Jonathan, maybe it does happen. But you know what? I've heard people that I never dreamt in a million years would ever listen to the name of Jesus. When they get in trouble, they yell out to Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus is the light that lights every one of your hearts this morning. He's the one that brought you into this world. And deep in your heart, the Holy Spirit lets every one of you know he's great. He's really great. I want you to know how great he is. Like right now, we're in the backwater of the movement of God. I rejoice with what the Holy Spirit's doing here. I rejoice with the incredible way you're reaching out to kids, and I want it to explode like crazy. But I want you to know that we as American believers are on the backside of where the Holy Spirit's working today. It's down in Latin America and Africa and Asia where the Holy Spirit, like an incredible fresh wind, is blowing. And thousands upon thousands of people are discovering Jesus is great. And right now, you are, as you worship Jesus, as we break bread together today, you are joining with millions upon millions upon millions of believers. There's a great task ahead. There are billions of people. There are, I think there's four, something like 15,000 people groups that we haven't even reached with, with the name of Jesus. You are worshiping the greatest Savior, and he is worshiped by more men and women around the world right now today than anyone else. He is great. He is great. He's the son of the highest. Again, says he will be called great and he will be the son of the highest and I will give to him the throne of, his, uh, throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever and his kingdom will never end. What an incredible miracle that is. And one of the things that troubles me as I read those words is the truth of the matter is that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not, Right? And one of the great crises of Christianity is that Jesus came into the world, he was a Jewish king, and the Jewish people rejected him. But you know what the scripture tells us is that not all the Jews rejected him. The early apostles were all Jewish and they received him. At Pentecost, 3,000 Jews received him, then 5,000 more, the whole foundation of the church. And down through the centuries, I believe the Lord has always had a remnant, and that includes today. Whether, whether the Jewish people physically recognize Jesus today as their king, our prayer needs to be, oh Lord Jesus, open the hearts of even your physical sons of Abraham. Some of you physical sons of Abraham are right here with us today. And how honored we are to have you part of the body of Christ. Thank you for letting us in. Thank you for letting us have a part of your Messiah. Thank you for Ephesians that said it broke down all the middle dividing wall. What is Jesus? Why is he great and why is he the son of the highest? Well, he's the son of the highest because his kingdom is going to rule forever and ever. But Luke, at, in chapter 20, tells us that right now his kingdom is within us. I want to reaffirm myself, my commitment to the kingdom of God. To be honest with you, the last few weeks have been a hard time for me. One of the things you have to do when you bury three guys in one week, and then after you bury your own father-in-law, then you keep having them. There's the intensive care call, and then you have to minister to that. 
I'm numb from that this morning. How about you? I'm not, just to be honest with you, as your pastor teacher, there's a numbness in me today. And I'm thankful that Jesus is great. I'm thankful that he can help me. And he really is great. I want you to know, like one of the neatest things, Joel and Courtney, before they left to go to Morocco, Joel and Courtney, Joel just said, Dad, do you mind if we just huddle together as a family and just pray for you and Mom? Jesus is great. I could go to heaven now with a dad that's had his second boy say, Dad, I love you. And before they left yesterday, our family that's here in the States gathered together around us and put their hands around us. And they prayed. And that prayer released the floodgates for Mary and let her cry and let her do some things that she needed to do. Jesus is great. We are losing in the body of Christ family. We are. We're becoming professionals. Even what we do Sunday morning. We even joke about it here. We're not on TV. We're not going to be on TV, brothers and sisters. I don't want to be on TV. Because family intimacy looks funny on TV. It looks, it looks kind of, you know what I'm talking about? But you need family this morning, brothers and sisters. Pastors, my pastoral staff, you can't go into an intensive care ward. You can't go into a funeral home. Elders, you can't go in and minister from a distance. You can't say, well, I'm not going to cry and I'm not going to let it go. And I don't mean that you just lose it, but I'm saying you got to care. The Apostle Paul says, I am burdened daily by the sufferings of the body of Christ. I am being torn apart over all that's happening in the body of Christ. Paul's heart was so big that he says, I suffer daily because of the hurts of my brothers and sisters. And we have an American church where we have professionals that live in other classes they never visit the hospital anymore. They don't really go into mortuaries. They don't go where people... They don't even counsel anymore. They just do their radio program. They write their books. That's not going to work, brothers and sisters. That's not going to change the world. The third world pastors and teachers are telling me, Dave, you got to be broken. you got to die. You don't run away from suffering. Jesus, Jesus took suffering right in the face. Didn't run away from it. And I told you that you're going to celebrate a greater miracle today than even the virgin birth. You know what Paul said in Galatians 2.20? He says, I am crucified with Christ. What it means to die with Christ is that you join Christ in his path of suffering. That you don't get angry and turn away, but you join him in facing the, the tremendous struggle of living in a fallen world. I am crucified with Christ. We die to our arrogance and our power and our pride. We die to living for ourselves and thinking we're the important one. It means we take up our towel and we become servants. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The Virgin Mary had Jesus created in her womb. If you've received Jesus into your heart, Jesus was created in your life. 
Jesus came to live in your life. You are the carrier of the spiritual presence of Jesus. That's a greater miracle. The virgin birth, the virgin conception, to be more accurate, was one Jewish girl with the presence of Jesus physically in her womb. I'm looking today at hundreds of carriers of the person of Jesus. I am awed by you all. It means you can go into your families, you can go into your jobs, and you can minister. And I want you to, I want you to know that you can hug your loved ones and you can pray for them. God is great. God is also great in little things. I'd share one more thing. I want you to rejoice in the greatness of God. I shared about how Joel called for us to pray. But Joel also, Joel and Courtney did a really wacky thing. They'd been praying for the last two months that they could go to Morocco to visit their brother, Jonathan and Leslie, and Leslie's new coming baby. I said to Joel when he came home about a week ago, I said, Joel, you got your tickets? No. I said, Joel, you put it on your visa card. He said, no. He said, I'm getting ready to go to the mission field. And we've got to learn to really believe that God shows up. And so we've asked the Lord of the family, if you want us to go to Morocco to visit our brother and get a taste of what it's like to have baby Blythe in the mission field in an Islamic country, then God, you're going to have to do it. So we, they had people give them money. They saved, and they had so much money. They had an exact amount. They got on the Internet two days before they were supposed to leave. It was twice as much as that. I said, man, Joel, it's not going to work. I, said, even, I, can't even, I can't even come up with that much money right now. And, and, and Mary says, no, Dave, don't play Jesus. <laughs> because we don't have the money to do it. Yesterday, yesterday, I'm working in our sewage, you know, getting our thing with Ronnie Jackson fixed up. Blythe, Joel brings Blythe out. I couldn't even hug her because I was all covered with, you know what? They left. They still didn't have a ticket. I said, Joel, what are you doing? And Mary and, Mary and I, the great stalwarts of parental examples of faith. <laughs> Mary says, take your car so that you can drive home. But she did come up with a great idea. They gave us their little, they gave us their little thing that would unlock the door. And after I got through fixing our drainage, Mary said, we need to go get the car. And I want you to know that Joel and Courtney are somewhere in Europe right now because they're on their way. Joel got a ticket. Jonathan called us at 6 o'clock in the morning. Where's my brother? I'm not sure they've connected yet, so we need to pray that Jesus will be great. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, you know what? Jesus, if he wants you to go to Morocco, can give you a ticket. I'm not, Joel wasn't being foolish. He didn't go in debt. He didn't do a crazy thing. But you know, it was an awesome thing to have Courtney and Joel say to me, Dad, what a great adventure of faith. Isn't it great to be able to believe that my heavenly daddy and his son is working powerfully in our life today? And I couldn't believe it when Joel says, I got a ticket for exactly what the Lord provided. And that's what I covet for us. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065. Or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. 
Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.